The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's the March 21 edition of the PFTPM podcast. What do you say? How you doing? Let's do this. Got to get right to it. Tyron Matthew coming up, debuting the interview that I conducted with him earlier today here. We'll have it on PFT Live as well tomorrow. I don't know if we fit it all in. When we do the interviews in this context, it's just the whole thing because there's no time limit. We just do we do whatever we want. Further discussion about the catch rule. Al Riveron, the NFL Senior VP of Officiating, has unveiled what the competition committee will be recommending to ownership next week. Three elements. And remember, I've been saying the third element is the kid critical element, the key element. One and two, easy. Three, that's where the problems have come from. Element one, control of the football. We knew that. Element two, two feet down or another body part. We knew that. Element three, a football move is required. Not enough time to perform a football move. Well, not really, not directly. Or enough time to clearly become a runner. It's a football move such as one, taking a third step, two, reaching or extending for the line to gain or the goal line, three, the ability to perform such an act. So, as I said on PFT Live this morning, they could have gone objective or subjective for element three. They chose both. It's objective and it's subjective. They're going to make this thing more confusing if they're not careful. Just make it third step or reaching for the line to gain. See, that encompasses Des Bryant if you go third step and a lot of these other plays when they're out in the open field. One step, two step, third step, fall to the ground, ball comes out, current rule, potentially incomplete, new rule, that would be a fumble. Better hold on to the football. But the third step necessarily is enough time to make it a catch. The lunge toward the end zone, the Jesse James play, he didn't take a third step, his knee hit the ground, but he lunged toward the end zone. That makes it a catch. And really, both of those elements would have allowed Des Bryant's play to be good because he lunged with the ball tucked in his his forearm toward the end zone. He was trying to reach to the end zone. Didn't make it, but he tried to. He would have been reaching for the line to gain, the ultimate line to gain, the goal line. The ability to perform that act, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. And the problem is, what's Riveron going to do on replay review? If somebody didn't get a third step, didn't reach with the ball, but maybe had the ball long enough, to take a third step. I mean, I, I, I guess it would be the equivalent of catching the ball at the back of the end zone with both feet down, right? And you have it there for a full second before somebody blasts you and the ball comes out. If it's a split second, it's incomplete. 
If it's a full second, well, he had the ability to take a third step or reach for the line to gain, even though he had no incentive because he was inside and beyond the line to gain. But he had the ability to do it. I think they felt compelled to add that in there so we don't see this gratuitous extra step. Caught the ball, hey, extra step. Hey, I got the catch, extra step. Touchdown, wait, extra step. So I can see why it makes sense. The problem is it introduces subjectivity or the ability to perform such an act. Here's what it actually does. It makes it harder to overturn on replay review. Well, did he take a third step? Tony, did he take a third step? Maybe. Doesn't matter. What matters is whether he had the ability to take a third step. He didn't actually get the third foot down before the ball came out, but he had the ability to do it sooner. I don't like that. They better get rid of that. It's going to screw things up. It's going to confuse everyone. There's no reason for it. There's no reason for it. But the problem is they recognize that the third step, there may be a situation where there's no reason to take a third step because you're in the, can't they just make an exception in the end zone? But see, here's the problem. That's why I've been saying the time element is so important. In the end zone, you catch the ball, you got two feet down, you're immediately blasted and the ball comes out. We don't expect that to be a catch. Split second, not a catch. Full second, a catch. That's why if they're going to do this, just stick with the prior rule and make element three not subject to replay review and just let the officials decide. And maybe sometimes they'll make a mistake and maybe sometimes they won't, but at least we'll all know what the rule is. And you don't get replay review screwing up. This is still a window for replay review to screw it up and defy expectations about what a catch is. All right. I, I'm, I, don't, I just don't like this. They've made it too complicated. That was my fear. They're going to make it too complicated. They're making this too complicated. Two objective indicators for finalizing a catch with a subjective catch-all or the ability to perform such an act. I just don't know. Well, he didn't lunge, but, you know, he had the ability. We know his arms are working. Well, he he didn't take a third step, but we can't rule out the possibility that he had the ability to take a third step. Tony, what do you think of that? Panthers for sale. Price expected to exceed $2.5 billion. Now, Shefty said back early in the process in one of his breathless tweets that the price of the Panthers is expected to get to $2.5 billion. And my reaction to that was, how the hell do you know now? You can't know now. You can only know when the bidding starts because anything is worth what it costs. And I said that knowing full well that, you know what, there's a chance it does drive north of $2.5 billion, and if it does, it does. But you can't say that out of the gates because you don't know. We're all worth, worth whatever someone will pay us, period. Every asset is worth whatever someone will pay for it, period. You get enough bidders, you drive up the price, which isn't bad 
for Jerry Richardson. He is a motivated buyer, shall we say. He has the absence of the benefit of the ultimate leverage. Screw it, I ain't selling it. You know what? I'm thinking about selling it. What What would you pay for this? Well, we'll pay you that. Well, screw it. I'm not selling it. That's a way to drive the price up. Well, okay. Well, if you're not selling it, well, maybe I'll throw in a little bit more. Sorry, I'm still not selling it. Oh, shit. I really wanted that. How much more is it going to take to make you willing to sell it? See, that, that element's not there. But if you have enough really rich people who want to buy, then it doesn't matter. The price is going to get driven up to whatever the highest bidder will pay to get the asset. Now, the financials have to support the number. It's not just a vanity buy, although sometimes it is. Does anybody really think the L.A. Clippers were worth $2 billion when Steve Ballmer bought them? $2 billion? Hey, I want to buy a team. There aren't many of these available. You tend to overpay. If there's a hot toy that you want to get for your kid, there aren't many available. You tend to overpay. There's a car that you want to have. There aren't many available. Cars get sold over sticker all the time. So the scarcity of the asset, I think, coupled with the ego and the vanity and the pride of the buyer, and they want to have this asset, and you get more than one bidder, it can make things go haywire. So that's what's happening with the Carolina Panthers. And they'd like to get this thing finalized by May. I wouldn't be surprised if it gets finalized before then without a formal ownership meeting. It just won't surprise me if that happens. The owners have to vote, but they don't have to have a formal meeting to vote. I saw something today that the New York Giants were meeting with some of the top quarterback prospects, and people knee-jerk reaction assume that means the Giants are going quarterback at number two. It doesn't mean that. If the Giants are going to trade that pick, they're trading a player. And they have to value the player before they can value the pick. Same reason the Dolphins are doing the work up on Baker Mayfield. There's a chance he'll be there at 11. And the Dolphins can auction that pick. I don't think he'll be there at 11. Now, the Dolphins also have to know whether or not they would want him. And I think with the Giants, it's more realistic that they are simply valuing the pick. And also, you feign interest in a quarterback to maybe get someone to be willing to come up and willing to make the move. What if the Jets move to three thinking they'll have their pick of the quarterbacks after Sam Darnold? We think that the Browns are taking Darnold and we'll have the pick of the quarterbacks after because the Giants aren't taking a quarterback. Now all of a sudden the Giants are taking a woman. Maybe they're going to take a quarterback. Maybe the maybe the Jets have to move up to two. And, and I love it how people insist the Jets and Giants are never going to make a trade. But what? Really? Why would they never make a trade? Division rivals make trades all the time. Why in the hell wouldn't the Jets and Giants make a trade? I, I, I don't buy that. So there's plenty of reasons to keep your options open. Strategically, the best move is to make it look like you can do anything and may do anything with that pick. And you need to be ready to value that spot properly if the Bills want to trade up to number two, which I I think is still very much in play. Quick word about spring football before... We play the Tyron Matthew interview, and then after the interview, I'll answer some of your questions if you have any. I don't know if you have any. You probably do. You've been pretty good about that ever since we launched the PFTPM podcast. 
Here's the thing about spring football, because I keep wrestling with whether or not people will care. There, there was some sizzle with the whole idea of the XFL coming back, but you know, I told myself at the time, if I had an opportunity to invest, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put a dime up for it. No way. And now I'm very conservative with my money, which is a, I guess, nice way of saying I'm a cheap ass, but I don't see a guaranteed return. I'm only putting my money in something where I see a guaranteed return. And I feel like the only guarantee with a football league other than the NFL is you're eventually going to go out of business with a bunch of debt, unpaid players, and people who are upset with you. There's one way that spring football can work, though. This idea of being a developmental league, that new league, the Alliance of American Football, Bill Pauley and Charlie Ebersole, I think it's admirable. But nobody gives a shit if they're going to see a young Kurt Warner or a young Adam Vinatieri. They're not Kurt. We don't know that they're Kurt Warner or Adam Vinatieri when they're toiling away in a spring league. And they're going to let these guys freely leave. You develop a star and he's gone. He gets signed by the Steelers for their offseason program. And the Steelers want to snatch him up before he gets injured. Hey, this guy looks pretty good. He rushed for 150 yards and he's gone. Admirable but I don't know how effective it's going to be. I don't know how many people are going to care. And if it was going to be successful financially, the NFL would have already done it by now. The NFL wouldn't have gotten rid of the World League. The NFL would have replaced the World League with some other football league played in the spring for the purposes of development. But there's a reason a decade has gone by now with nothing. And don't think that NFL owners want or care about developing young talent. They already have more than they need. It would be a great story for a Kurt Warner to come along and develop in a league below the NFL and become a Hall of Famer. That would be great. But for every Kurt Warner who turns into an NFL starter, he's taking somebody else's job. What about the guys who are already there? There's only 53 roster spots and only 32 teams. Now, could the NFL use more quarterbacks that are good? Sure. But does it justify spending all that money, losing money, attaching your brand to a losing proposition? That's my concern. But there is one way it can work, and that's through legalized gambling. Because people are going to bet on whatever they can bet on. What else are you going to bet on February, March, April? Well, other than NCAA basketball. It's football that you can bet on. Gambling becomes legal. Spring football becomes something that people will watch if they've wagered money on it. And people will wager money on it when all you have to do is pull up your phone, press a button, and you can put 10 bucks on whichever obscure team they end up coming up with to win by more than four and a half points. I mean, that's the saving grace for spring football. So maybe the Alliance of American Football, the XFL, the Spring League, maybe they all can thrive if there is a market for betting on sports. See, that's the one thing I think we need to keep an eye on. Legalized betting on sports could result in a lot more sports. Because if there's sports that you can wager on, there's sports you're going to be interested in. Whatever it is. I I remember when I was a kid, like the local grocery store had this this game where you'd get the little game pieces and they played horse races 
and you had the winners on the game pieces. And it was a show on TV, and it was old horse races. I mean, it was all rigged. It was all fixed. They knew which horse was going to win. They just played the race where the right number won. And you're sitting there thinking you got the winner, and the horse is winning, and then it loses at the end. And I tune in to watch it. Hey, I got this game piece. I have a vested interest in it. Well, I have to find out if it wins. What am I going to do? I'm going to watch Let's Go to the Races. I think that's what it was called. It was a very clever way to indoctrinate young gamblers. <laughs> um, didn't work. But, but, but that's the thing. If we have something invested in it, we'll watch it. So maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll work. Of course, you have nothing financially invested in this program, and you still listen to it. Not quite sure why. I know why today. Because your reward for listening today is to get to hear an interview with Texans defensive back Tyron Matthew. Here it is right now. I guess I'm going to have to go get myself some Texans gear because they now have one of my favorite offensive players in the NFL and one of my favorite defensive players in the NFL, Deshaun Watson, already on the team. Tyron Matthew, the newest arrival, he joins us now. Tyron, welcome back. How are you, pal? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you doing? (laughs) Hey, I'm doing great. It's been a crazy week for you. And before we talk about Houston, let's go to your hometown of New Orleans because you have a big weekend coming up. You've got the... Tyron Matthew kickball classic coming up on Friday, or is that Saturday? Saturday the 24th, and then the Heart of a Badger Youth Skills Camp on Sunday the 25th. Why is it that you continue to focus so much of your time and effort on your hometown in New Orleans? Well, I think it's just, um, you know, part of uh, uh, who I became um, and who I've always wanted to be. Um, And obviously I've always wanted to be a a branch in my community that, you know, I can inspire people and um, encourage people. And, uh, you know, I've been able to do that through my foundation. And um, uh, I'm definitely just trying to impact, you know, areas that I'm familiar with, um, you know, my hometown in in New Orleans and Arizona. And, um, you know, I have a new hometown now in Houston, too. So um, uh, I'm just going to spread my branches, man, and try to help these kids and inspire them. And uh, that's what it's all about. And I didn't realize that Houston was already kind of a hometown for Tyron Matthew because during Katrina back in 2005, you spent some time in Houston after the the city of New Orleans was ravaged by that storm. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, my family and I, um, you know, we moved there. We actually stayed in a shelter uh, in North Louisiana for about two weeks. And then from there, we, we, we moved right outside of Houston to Humble, Texas. And, um, you know, we stayed there until the fall of the new year. And uh, we were able to go back home to New Orleans. Uh, a few schools had opened up. and um, But um, Houston treated us well. And, um, you know, it was a great time that I spent there, you know, uh, obviously under different circumstances. But, um, you know, Houston was great to us back there. What's the biggest reason you picked the Texans? You know, I I, I looked at their roster, and, you know, they were kind of like me in a sense, right, Um, full of potential. Um, And I looked at them, and I thought that these guys were hungry, right, like Javion Clowney, obviously J.J. coming off his injuries, having a few setbacks, and, you know, the team losing Deshaun last year. um, I thought this team – would be hungry. And um, I wanted to go to a team that was starving um, and a team that had great potential. Um, but I wanted to go to a team that I could be comfortable with, right, and guys that I knew. Um, and obviously me and J.J., you know, we've built a great relationship over the last couple of years, so that helped. And um, obviously, you know, I want to play for great coaches as well. You know, I had some great coaches in Arizona. And I think Romeo Cornell is, you know, I think he will get me back to, you know, um, what I'm capable of being, Right. Like um, I had a few rough patches the last couple of seasons, no doubt about it. But um, 
uh, I think that I finished last season on a high note, and I think that he can get me back to that level um, that I'm that I know I can play at. So um, that was ultimately like the decisions um, w- w- what they came down to. You made it clear after you were released by the Cardinals that money was not the main factor for you. You wanted to be in a place where you believed you could be successful. But at the end of the day, I mean, one year, $7 million, nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. Do, you, do you think you left money on the table with other teams? <laughs> yeah, it, you know, there's no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, um, we definitely had uh, offers that, that were more. And, uh, you know, but for me, though, it, w- it wasn't about chasing money or, you know, um, you know, trying to get this big payday again, right? Like it was about me getting back to the basics and getting back to my roots and uh, getting back to working hard and, you know, being productive on the football field. So I wanted to go to a team um, that could help me, you know, do do that, do those things. Is it fair to say, Tyron, that maybe at some level you welcomed the opportunity for a fresh start, that at this stage of your career it was the right time especially everything going on with the Cardinals, new coach, new quarterbacks. Maybe this is the perfect opportunity to, to just start a new chapter for yourself. Yeah, man. And, um, you know, I had a great time in, in Arizona, and um, I definitely feel like they watched me grow up to become this young man, you know, uh, especially off the football field. But, you know, I think fresh starts are new. And um, um, and obviously growth is always new. But I look at my life as a DB, right? Like I'm constantly in transition, right? And um, so I just embrace it, man. And um, I don't try to get too far ahead. or I definitely don't try to look back. But I just try to continue to fall forward. How hard will it be for you, Tyron, to move forward with your career without Patrick Peterson as a teammate? <laughs> you know, it's going to be really tough, man. Um you know, that was my guy, right? Like, you know, um, you know, um, you know, he, he was there for me all the time. And, you know, we, we've gone on almost 10 years knowing each other and, you know, being teammates, right? And we just been comfortable with each other, competing with each other every day in practice. And I think that that's what we'll miss the most, just us out there competing with each other, <laughs> you know, trying to make each other better. And um, like I said, man, hopefully I can develop a relationship like that, you know, in Houston. Um, and, um because those kind of relationships make you better as a player, no doubt. You know, from the team's perspective, it's a business. They're always looking for ways to save money and create salary cap space. I can't help but wonder whether or not maybe the Cardinals looked at your relationship with Patrick, your relationship with the team, and they thought, hey, we can squeeze this guy a little bit because ultimately he'll, he'll take what we offer and not say no to us because he's going to want to stay here. Did you ever get the sense that maybe the Cardinals thought this guy's not going to leave, so this is a way that we can maybe cut down on our cap burden, cut down on our cash flow? Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, when you when you get put in those situations as a player, you play out every scenario or most scenarios. And I think that that was a scenario that I played out. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, man, it's a business. And, you know, um, they made that decision. You know, I can live with it. Um, but, you know, I think the thing that I'm most proud of and the thing that I won't the reason I won't look back is because, you know, I did everything that I said I was going to do in Arizona. Right. I handled myself off the field the right way. And, you know, I try to be as productive as I can, despite my challenges on the field. And um, so uh, but I left a great mark in Arizona. And, um, you know, I'm happy with that. Give me one guy who plays offense in the NFC West that you will be glad to not have to deal with twice per year. Russell Wilson, there's no doubt about it, man. He's one of the most underrated players in the, in the National Football League, man. Um, uh, I think if the Seattle Seahawks didn't have him, um, I don't think they would be as dominant, man. But, you know, um, he was definitely, he's definitely one of the best players, you know, in the game. 
Yeah, and I think one of the reasons he's underrated, I feel like his teammates over the years haven't appreciated him as much as maybe they should. And and even though you're not in the NFC West anymore, you ever get the impression that maybe, you know, some of these guys who are now moving on, this, that this is really about making the Seahawks about Russell Wilson. And if there's anybody there who's not on board with it, then, you know, you're going to have to find another team because this is Russell Wilson's team going forward. Yeah, um, you know, like I said, man, to me, he's one of the best players in the game. You know, I've, I've had a chance to play against him, you know, maybe 10 times already. And, you know, um, he's been one of the greatest competitors, you know, one of the most, um, you know, well-thought players, you know, on the field, most one of the most comfortable players, you know, poised players I've ever played against. And, um, you know, he does things that you can't coach. And that's what makes players special, you know. And um, obviously Seattle had a great defense, right, you know, the last the last five, six years. And, you know, I think that kind of overshadowed him a little bit. But, um, you know, there's no doubt that the guys that play against Russell Wilson, you know, they know what kind of player he is. Okay, so who's the guy in the AFC South now that you're already starting to take notes on, watch film, and say this is going to be the guy who's going to be a handful for me when we play him twice this year? Well, you know, uh, I think this is I think this is a tough division. You know, I think especially in the trenches. You know, um, I think that uh, most teams in this division can run the football. You know, especially with the Titans and the Jags, man. So, um, you know, we're going to have our handful from from that standpoint. And um, obviously, they got playmakers on the outside. So, um, I kind of look at I try to look at the big picture um, and not try to focus on you know individual battles or whatnot. Um, but um, it's going to be fun, man, to just get in this division, compete, be in a division with guys like. You know, Jalen Ramsey, A.J. Boye, you know, Kevin Byard from, from the Titans. Being in the division with guys that can really play, um, guys that are all pros. And, you know, me being able to just compete with those guys, right, and be in the same division, um, that's ultimately, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons, too, that I chose to play for the Texans because I knew I was yeah. going into a division that had great defensive players, and I wanted to compete with those guys. Great teams, two playoff teams, a team that made it to the Final Four, and the Titans made it to the Final Eight. You mentioned earlier this week, Tyron, that you've learned some things over the years about how to ensure that you're going to be able to play each and every week. And I, Can you share one or two of just you know nuts and bolts things you've learned, or does this fall into the top-secret file not to be shared with anyone? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, man. Um, you know, I think, you know, what I was able to do was really reach out to veteran players, man. You know, guys like Thomas Davis, you know, Carlos Dansby, you know, Tremaine Williams, you know, guys that have played 14, 15, you know, 16 years in this league at high levels. And, you know, I just try to follow those guys' regimen, you know. I try to eat cleaner, right? Um, you know, I try to get stretches, get massages. I try to take care of my body in ways that I never thought I could because I was always one of those guys who just woke up and did it, <laughs> you know? So, um, but I had to, I had to do an extra step, man. I had to do, I had to take the extra mile, man. And, um, you know, it's been paying off for me. So I'm really excited about, you know, um, you know, how I was able to, you know, play the most snaps in the league last year and, you know, finish every game. Uh, that meant a lot to me, man. You made the comments earlier about Russell Wilson. He and Deshaun Watson had an epic battle. It ended up being Watson's last game of the year. He had the torn ACL that he suffered in practice a few days later. Give me your assessment of Deshaun Watson, what you think he can be when healthy and ready to go in 2018. Uh, I've always been a fan of him. <laughs> you know, ever since he's been, uh, he's been at Clemson, um, 
Um, we've we've always been in communication, man, just feeding off each other energy, man. And um, he's a special talent. And you know, like I said, man, just having just being in the division, in the division of Russell Wilson, man, and seeing the kind of player that he truly was. Um, I think Deshaun Watson can definitely be that kind of player. Well, he definitely has that potential. Um, so um, I know he's a hard worker, man, uh, and I know he has that swagger. And um, you know, uh, those are some of the things you just can't coach, man. And um, you know, I think that's what makes players special. And, um, I think he just has that it factor. You know, I think he showed it as a rookie. Um, and obviously coming off this injury, I know he's going to have that that chip on his shoulder to prove his point again. So I'm um, excited to see it, man. I'm excited to be his teammate. All right, and before I let you go, as I mentioned earlier on Sunday, it's the annual Heart of a Badger Youth Skills Camp, free for grades K through 9 in New Orleans. And the day before that, Tyron Matthew Kickball Classic. Give us an idea of some of the folks who are going to be there for that. Yeah, man. So if you're familiar with LSU football, um, Patrick Peterson, Jarvis Landry, um, uh, Leonard Fournette, all those guys will be there. Brad Wing, um, and uh, obviously on the opposing team, we have the Team Savages we're playing against, um, who's going to be coached by Birdman, <laughs> which I think is I think is hilarious. But um, we're going to have a bunch of names on that team: Robert Elford, Ted Ginn, Mike Thomas, Marshawn Lattimore. So. It's going to be a star-studded event, man, and um, it'll, be, it'll be a family event, too. So um, we're excited to be out there, man, and just be a part of the community and do something positive. Hey, what happens the first time Fournette breaks through the line and he's coming right at you? Do you go high, medium, or low? Um, I definitely go low, and I definitely <laughs> I, I got I to go low. <laughs> I got to go low. <laughs> well, hey, uh, we appreciate your time, Tyron. Congratulations on the success and, and also on landing with the Houston Texans. It's going to be a fun season to see what you and the guys do there, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Thanks again, Tyron Matthew. Excited to see what he does in Houston and the AFC South. Very interesting division in 2018. Interested to see your questions? I I made the request a little bit late, so there aren't as many as there otherwise would be. That's another way of saying I forgot to make the request. I posted the tweet just a few minutes before we launched today. At Ned's feed, will the NFL ever consider using the baseball rules for a catch, and if so, would this permit receivers to use baseball gloves? Huh? I don't know if Ned's trying to be funny. Baseball gloves? Be a big-ass glove. Be like a highlight glove. Didn't they have big gloves in highlight? They got that big scooped glove on the highlight fronton, I think is the word. Do they still have highlight? You can bet on it. If you can bet on it, they probably still have it. At first down, Rams, where do you think Sue signs? I don't know. I saw the report today that he's not visiting the Raiders. I wonder if he's got like a minimum financial package that you got to be willing to put on the table before he'll come see you. Something happened. Either he decided screw it or the Raiders decided screw it. But something happened to scare him away or scare them away. Rams tightened Saints so far. He's reportedly going home to ponder his options. He must not have gotten an offer that he really likes. If he had, he would have signed it. I think the key, though, is make sure that the team accepts Sue for who he is, a guy who's not going to embrace leadership, a guy who's not going to be there for the offseason program, a guy who from time to time is going to step on lines and or legs and or arms and or nuts. You just got to accept him for who he is. The Rams with Sue 
would be very scary. Any contending team with Sue would be very scary. If you embrace who he is and let him be who he is, and and hopefully uh, he can direct that that football aggression in a positive way. But I, at this point, I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do because I don't, I've seen nothing about what he's being offered financially. And I've seen nothing about what he really wants. I don't know what he really wants. There's been some conflicting information about what he really wants. I don't know what he really wants. And it could be that he's trying to scare up another wave of suitors. Maybe if teams realize that the price isn't quite what they thought it was going to be. Because I think some of the teams have maybe held back because it's like, we're not paying this guy $17 million a year. If he's looking to get the $17 million a year that he would have gotten over the final three years of his deal in Miami, maybe a little more than $17 million, whatever it is. If he's looking to replace the final three years of his Miami deal, we're not interested. At Thomas J. Gunther, which positions does it pay more to target in free agency versus the draft? I don't know that there's a hard and set rule there. I don't think that there's one position that's better to target in free agency. It all depends upon what you're trying to do. Free agency is a way to improve your team more quickly if you make a good decision and if you have the money to spend. It depends on where your needs are. Hey, we have a need at running back. Well, we can wait to draft a running back, or we can just go out and get a guy who's proven and bring him in, and then we've got the bird in the hand going into the draft, and we don't have to worry about getting a running back. Or you know what? We need a quarterback, and I'd rather pay somebody who has shown he can play at a high level than roll the dice on somebody who hasn't because we need a quarterback to play right now. We can't put a guy on the bench for a year. So I don't think there is one that that is more conducive to free agency. However, generally speaking, from the standpoint of free agent acquisitions who will mesh more quickly and get up to speed more quickly, you know, offensive line takes time because you got to get to know the other offensive linemen. You got to mesh with them. I'd say defensive free agents generally will give you a return more quickly because it's it's more well, depending upon the scheme. If it's not a complicated scheme, you just go you, you go do what you're supposed to do, especially defensive line. You just do what you're supposed to go go. Go get the ball. Go get the quarterback. It's, it's a I think, an easier process to understand a defensive playbook and a defensive scheme than it is to get up to speed with an offense that you don't know. And if you already know the offense, then that's a plus. That makes you more attractive. So I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. It's a good question. I just don't think that there's one position that stands out as easier to find somebody who can get it done in free agency versus the draft. At Black 88 Elite, will Martellus play or retire this year? Any news on Gronk? I, I saw that Martellus Bennett was doing some media. We, we were trying to schedule him for an interview. I don't know what ever happened with that. He's He's got a children's book that he's promoting, and he's currently available. Last year, he signed a, a pretty significant deal with the Green Bay Packers. It didn't work out. He had a shoulder problem. I think he said on Rich Eisen's show he's not sure whether or not he's going to play this year. I think a lot of it depends upon what's out there financially. He could always wait and see. You get to a certain age, skip the offseason program, wait till training camp, wait till somebody gets injured. Maybe you get some leverage that way. It'd be neat to see the two Bennett brothers play together in Philadelphia. It, it's felt like that's going to happen at some point, and, and maybe it will. But... I don't know what his expectations are by way of what he'll be paid and by way of what his role will be. At Black88 Elite, has Richard Sherman blocked you on Twitter? Not yet. 
Black 88 Elite, another question. Now that Chris Long got his raise, will Nick Folk get his? That's the first thing I thought when I saw that Chris Long's getting a raise. Nick Folk would like a word. And someone told me, someone who's in position to know, told me, I don't know, a month, month and a half ago, that they think the ultimate outcome of Nick Folk will be he stays in Philly and they do give him more money. Not the $3 million roster bonus he got over the weekend. That was already earned and guaranteed a year ago. Saw people acting like that that's, oh, he gets a reward for the Super Bowl. No, he hasn't gotten his reward yet. We'll see if he gets it. He's not getting a new team, barring another Teddy Bridgewater type of a situation because all the seats are taken. And I don't see anybody giving up significant value to get Nick Foles at this point. So we'll see. But if they're going to start giving out rewards, they better give a reward to the quarterback who led the Eagles to their first ever Super Bowl championship. At B Flow Faux Show, are the Panthers more likely to be sold to an individual or a group of buyers? It, it, well, look, you can have up to 24 members of a group. You just have to have one person who leads the group, who buys 30% of the equity. And there are some different rules and exceptions. You got enough money beyond buying the equity to pay for the operations of the team. But most of these are groups. You get some other people involved in the group. Otherwise, you got to write the check by yourself. Two and a half billion. It's a lot easier to buy the team for. 30% of that. What's 30% of that? $750 million up front? You got you to gotta be liquid $750 million, and you got to have enough resources to run the team. And they do all that stuff. They do the finance report and the nooks and the crannies, and ultimately they have to vote on whether or not they're letting you in the club. But, but it's usually a group. Because you can get some really rich person who isn't rich enough to own the team but wants to be part of owning a team to buy a piece of the equity, and it's still a good investment. Whatever the purchase price, it's a good investment, unless it's just a ridiculously high, obscene number. I don't know how many of these people buy it for the investment versus saying, I'm a partial owner of the Carolina Panthers. I'm a partial owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm a partial owner of the Cleveland Browns. And I don't, I don't know if the Browns have any partial owners or they just bought the whole thing outright. It's a little bit harder to attract people to be partial owners of the Cleveland Browns, given their current performance. At Black 88 Elite, given over-under on how many quarterbacks go in the top 10, I'd say the over-under would be three and a half. I always like a half because I don't like push. Let's go three and a half in the top 10. No, four and a half. No. Yeah, let's go four and a half. Let's go four and a half. I don't know which four, but we'll put the over-under at four and a half in the top 10 because I think there's going to be a run at the top. And other teams may be trading into the top. Look at the recent trade-ups. Look at what they've done. Patrick Mahomes, they're raving about him. The Chiefs moved from 27 to 10 to get him last year. Deshaun Watson, he was at 12. Mitchell Trubisky traded up one spot from 3 to 2 to get him. The year before that, Jared Goff and Carson Wentz trades up. I think we're going to see either 4 or 5 in the top 10. We could see all 5 of the top prospects go in the first 10 picks. So 4 and a half. If you're looking for things to wager on in places where wagering is illegal or otherwise. At B Flow Full Show, crazy trade idea. Browns trade number one overall pick to the Jets for the number three pick and first and second round next year. I, I don't know. I'm not sure that the Jets know what they're doing with the third overall pick. I think they just took it, number one, to keep the Bills away from it for now, and number two, to have the privilege of figuring out who they will take in that spot. And I think they believe they'll eventually feel strongly enough about someone. I just don't think they know for sure. 
even if they're going quarterback, I don't think they know for sure which three quarterbacks they feel the most strongly about. And I still think there's a chance they could auction that pick because once the first two picks are taken, there's going to be somebody else out there who says, I got to have the next guy, that next guy. Oh, I know who I want. I'm going to go get him. Maybe the Jets get a greater return by moving out of three. Maybe they can get somebody to leapfrog the Browns at four. Maybe you can auction off Saquon Barkley, auction off the third quarterback, auction off the second quarterback if Barkley ends up being the second overall pick. At Andrew Ye, how does the new catch rule proposed by the competition committee address tiptoe catches at the sideline going out of bounds? It doesn't address it specifically. It says that you, you have to have the ability to make that football move. That, that third step or reaching for the line to gain. The tiptoe catch at the sideline, I think you're going to have to hold on to the football through the act of going to the ground. I think that's the one area where if you land out of bounds and you tiptoed on the sidelines, you got to hold on to the football or it's not a catch. I have a feeling that that's what the outcome is going to be. At B. Flow Faux Show, Richard Sherman saying he studied contracts for 12 hours so he can negotiate his own is like me telling him I can play cornerback in the NFL because I studied 12 hours of all 22 tape from last year or saying I could be an NFL analyst because I listened to PFT all day. Yeah, I, I, yes. Look, I, I said everything I want to say about the Richard Sherman situation, but maybe I'll say a little bit more. I think the problem here is fundamentally and at its core ego. I think that Richard Sherman and other players didn't get their butts kissed the way they expected to get their butts kissed by their agents. I don't know what more they want. NFLPA certified contract advisor. That's what an agent is called. You're a contract advisor. You're advising on their contract. You're getting compensated for getting them the most that you possibly can on their contract. I don't know what else the job is supposed to entail. But he and Russell Okung aren't happy with the fact that agents negotiate these contracts, take their cut, and move on. And I really think it comes down to, number one, not wanting to write the check to the agent. And number two, thinking that I'm smart enough that I can figure it out. I'm... I'm just as smart. I can do that. It looks easy. I can do that. That's where ego takes over. I I hope that that's all. I, I just, my biggest concern here is I don't want to see guys get screwed on a widespread basis. If Richard Sherman wants to do a bad deal, more power to him. But if he convinces other players, I don't know why he and Russell Okun want to convince other players to represent themselves. Let, let these guys make their own decisions. Don't, don't try, why, why do you want them to do bad deals? Because Russell Okung, the first year, he did a bad deal. The Broncos' deal was horrendous. Sherman's deal was arguably worse. So why are you trying to talk guys into representing themselves when it's not in their interests? And a good agent is going to get 99.9%, if not 100% of these guys, better deals than they're going to get on their own. All right. Dan Lekaski wants to know, who does Quentin Nelson compare to? Is it fair to compare him to Alan Fanick? I haven't studied enough Quentin Nelson to know. All I know is the guy's getting buzz as a potential top 10 pick. 
and we're seeing more focus on interior offensive linemen. See, once it was left tackle, oh, we've got to have a great left tackle, great left tackle, and then defense has realized, well, we'll just move our best pass rusher away from the left tackle. We'll put him on the crappy right tackle. So then, oh, you've got to have a great right tackle too because they'll move the defensive end side to side. Then it became they're going to move the defensive end to the inside, and they're going to take advantage of the, the not-so-great guards and center. So now interior offensive linemen have greater value. Look at what uh, Andrew Norwell got from the Jaguars in free agency. The bottom line is you've got to have five good offensive linemen. You have five good offensive linemen, you're going to have a pretty good offense. Otherwise, you have a weak link there that you're going to have to worry about. Some guy who's going to get thrown into the legs of the quarterback. we got four great offensive linemen, and we got one schlub. And the one schlub is going to screw everything up. At Ntothial32, how many people do you employ at PFT? Actually, I don't employ anyone. That's the beauty of the deal we have with NBC. People think NBC bought PFT, and I don't care. Look, I, I, I mean, I could tell somebody 50 times over the course of a year they didn't buy us, and they'll still think they bought us, either because they don't take the time to listen or they just don't want to believe me. NBC didn't buy us. PFT equity is not owned by NBC, and the PFT employees are compensated by NBC. All of our content is licensed to NBC for exclusive use by NBC and the people who write for the site other than me are employed by NBC. Now I'm employed by NBC Sports Radio, I'm employed by NBC for Sunday Night Football and for the simulcast of PFT Live, but NBC doesn't employ me to write for PFT. So I've got I've got through NBC Michael David Smith, Josh Alper, Shereen Williams, Darren Gant, and Curtis Crabtree part time. So Four and a half plus me, five and a half. And, and you know, that that's probably all we can handle. I don't think there'd be need for anyone else at this point just because I think that covers all of the transactions, all of the news, all of the analysis, all of the developments. And, and we didn't need extra help last week during free agency when it was fast and furious. I think we had 150 stories posted on the first day of free agency. So we have the capacity to handle the busy times, and uh, we don't have people sitting around twiddling their thumbs in the slow times. At Mark J. Boucher, true or false, New York Giants won't get a better trade offer for the number two pick than the Jets made for number three. I, I don't know. I don't know. Depends on how people value the player who's expected to be available at number two. I think the Jets traded for the spot and for the privilege to hold the spot and maybe use the spot. By the time a pick happens for number two, I think it's going to be more for a player. And it's, sometimes it's apples and oranges because the key is what first-round pick are you giving up to get the number two? Are you moving from four, from seven, from 10, from 20? And what else are you throwing onto the pile to get up to that two spot? So it, it, I, I think that it's a different process. But the Jets gave up a lot to move up three spots, three second-round picks to move up three spots. And, and I saw a conversation. I think MDS was involved in this. Jimmy Garoppolo was gotten for a second-round pick, and the Jets have taken a roll of the dice on the third overall pick by giving up the sixth overall pick plus three second-round picks. Keep this in mind, though. The 49ers had to pay Jimmy Garoppolo $27.5 million a year. The player the Jets take at number three won't make $27.5 million in his first four years combined. And the Patriots... Who got a second-round pick? Why didn't they get more? Well, what are they going to do? Jimmy Garoppolo is walking out the door. That was the last possible moment to trade Jimmy Garoppolo without playing a franchise tag game 
where you potentially end up with Garoppolo under contract for $24 million, $23 million and change, whatever the franchise tag for quarterbacks is this year. He signs it. You're stuck with him, and you can't trade him. What do you do then? you got a backup quarterback you're paying $23.5 million to. So the, the Patriots didn't see a good way out of the box, and if they hadn't traded him when they did, he was just going to walk away in March for the compensatory draft pick consideration they'd get for 2019. So I, I, it seems like the Jets gave up a lot. but And usually you make those picks for a player, but the Jets have a plan. I really don't think it's to take the third best quarterback on their board. I think I think that they believe there's going to be a run on quarterbacks and they're going to be able to take Saquon Barkley. I still think that. And I, I don't know why people think I'm crazy. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, people were raving about Saquon Barkley as the potential top pick in the draft. And the Jets are in win-now mode. They're willing to give up. Look, they, they gave up. A, they, they got a second-round pick for Sheldon Richardson, a guy who wouldn't be on the team right now anyway. Next year's second-round pick doesn't matter if you don't win this year. So all they really gave up in their mind, if you're looking at Bowles and McCagnan, what did they give up? They're really giving up as a practical matter their second-round pick this year. And they pissed away a second-round pick on Christian Hackenberg. It's very easy to justify giving up the second-round pick that they got by pure luck because they were able to dump Sheldon Richardson, a guy they didn't want. Next year's second-round pick is irrelevant if they don't make it to the playoffs or get damn close to it this year. And this year's second-round pick, yeah, it could be another Christian Hackenberg. Let's go get Saquon Barkley. I still, my gut tells me they want Saquon Barkley. I could be wrong. Wouldn't be the first time this week, this year, this month, this moment. But that, that's just what my gut tells me. <sighs> Let's see what else we have here. <laughs> At username taken, why is stats on your show? Does he really do anything? Does he raise his hand when he has a question? Here what's, here's what Stats does. Stats comes up with the, the outline of topics every day. It's a three-hour show. you got to come up with ideas for three hours. He's the producer of the show. He helps line up guests. There are multiple different people involved in lining up guests. He's involved in that. And Stats poses questions to help drive the discussion. So he's always listening. And from time to time, he will have a, a question that is aimed at steering the discussion in a certain direction because he thinks it needs to be nudged that way. He doesn't raise his hand. What he does is he texts me. He texts me that he has a question. And then I know he has a question. And I say, Stats, you have a question. And he answers the question. That's what he does. Now, before we had Chris Sims, there, there was more of a back and forth with Stats. But I think that he's more comfortable and we're more comfortable where he's in a role where he's driving the discussion, not with his opinions, but with his questions. But it's all about framing the discussion. Now, in the radio hour of the program... I think that he feels a little more at liberty to get involved. But the TV hour, it's a little more produced. The TV side, it's 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 got to be a little more buttoned up. They need to know what we're going to be talking about. They've got B-roll that they want to show. It's more of a production. And you can't just say, well, it's a radio show that happens to be on TV. Screw TV. No. you got to be sensitive to the fact that it's on TV. Otherwise, it's not going to be a good TV production. At Knowles, the Spark D, how logical or likely do you think it is for the Browns to trade to two to ensure they get their quarterback, plus arguably the most talented player in the draft in Saquon Barkley? I don't think they trade up from four to two. I think once they signed Carlos Hyde, that took them out of play for Saquon Barkley. If they want a running back, they can draft one round three, round four, round five. 
You're putting a lot of eggs in that basket if you take Saquon Barkley for the Browns or if you're the Jets. Although, again, Todd Bowles, Mike McCagnan trying to save their jobs. I don't think that vibe is in play yet in Cleveland. You can get great running backs at any round of the draft. Last year's Offensive Rookie of the Year came from the third round, Alvin Kamara. At only one chance, does PFT commenter smell like mint chew? I don't know what he... I've never noted, noticed any type of musk or odor on PFT commenter. All right. Probably should wrap it up. Scrolling through here. What else do we have here? Zay Jones. Bath salts or PCP? I still haven't seen that video. I guess it was pretty wild. I guess it was. At Deucebag2, is Sheldon Richardson a good fit in Zimmer's defense? Well, it's a 4-3 front, right? You put him in there next to Linval Joseph. Everson Griffin, Daniil Hunter on the outside. You, you let him just rip through. Do his thing. They wouldn't have signed him if they didn't think he was a good fit for the defense. So he'll step right into the starting role for that $8 million and see what he can do. But that 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 was huge for the Vikings. Sheldon Richardson on defense, Kirk Cousins on offense. Now they had to let Jarius Wright go. They restructured Latavius Murray. I think it ties their hands on other things they can do. It may make it harder to keep some of the guys they'd like to keep. But, uh, you know, th- this is further sign that they're going all in this year. They are going for it. And we'll see if they can get it. Their, their odds for winning the Super Bowl went from 16-1 to 1 to 12-1 to 1 after they signed Kirk Cousins. So it's hardly as if they were considered on the cusp, on the fringe of making it to the Super Bowl and winning it. The schedule this year a lot tougher, especially if they open right out of the gates in Philadelphia. One quick word before I go. If you follow us on Instagram, you saw... A photo I posted last night. Remember yesterday I said I had to wrap it up because I was going bowling? The two of you that actually made it that deep into the podcast, thank you for hanging with me. So I went bowling. My my nephew turned 11, and he's a big Richard Sherman fan, by the way. Big Seahawks fan. I, I don't think he's quite yet embraced the idea that Sherman's not going to be there this year. Because he's, he, you know, he's just in ob- oblivious kid land. He's not all in studying football all the time. I don't even think I've mentioned to him that Richard Sherman's gone. But uh, anyway, he's a big Seahawks fan. And we went bowling. He had his birthday party at the bowling alley. So I, I hadn't bowled in years. And I remember when I was a kid, my mom and I on a rainy, wintry Saturday afternoon, just went, you know, there's nothing going on in your home. They used to have a 90-minute pro bowling show on ABC. Earl Anthony. I liked Earl Anthony. I think he was left-handed, and I think that's why I would have liked him, because I'm left-handed. So anyway, I really liked watching bowling, and I was fascinated by how the scoring worked, and it took me a long time to figure it out. But I remember when I figured it out, I I remember thinking, hey, you know what? I'm not as stupid as I think. I figured out how they score bowling, and I I figured it out on my own. Because it's not like they explain it when you're watching, because they assume you know. But I remember just thinking, wow, this is cool. And so I went to bowl one time, and... Right in the gutter. So, okay, well, the ball comes. And it's just very intimidating. It's this new environment. And there's people there. And, and yes, back in the 70s, like bowling was, it felt like bowling was a bigger deal then. And yet people are wide, very self-conscious. They like fat little dopey kid. And right in the gutter. So, and the ball rolls back up. And it's like, well, I got to try it again. And it's just, everything's loud and bright. And it's this new environment. 
and you roll right into the gutter. And and it's it's you get caught in this vortex that you can't get out of. So that was my experience with bowling once. And I think I've been back two other times in my life. Because we're drawn to things we're good at, and we typically shy away from things that we suck at. And undeniably, I sucked at bowling. I think I went once back in 1989 when I was dating my wife. I think Joe and I and her brother went when we were in Morgantown. And I remember whatever I did, it wasn't enough to get me to want to, to bowl again. And then I vaguely recall bowling maybe once with my kid who was never really into it. I remember using the benefit of the bumpers once. I just remember always being really bad and the gutters being a magnet for the ball. So I went yesterday with no expectation and right out of the gates, right in the gutter. Gutter left, gutter right. And, and then all of a sudden, like something clicked. And, and I quit looking at the pins. And I quit looking at how long the alley is. And I just looked at those stupid-ass arrows. And I, you know, angles and lines and geometry, and I lined myself up. And I said, I'm just going to try to throw the ball down the middle every time. If I can successfully throw the ball down the middle every time, pins will fall. Now, we'll worry about, you know, getting the 7 or the 10 when it's, when it's alone and you got to angle it just right to avoid the gutter but take out the pin. I'll worry about that if we ever get to the point where that's the only pin I have to hit. And so, like, the first game I got a 60. And then we played another game, and I hung in there. The, in, the, in the second game, I did not throw a single gutter ball. I was very proud. I got a 95. I wasn't proud of that. So then one more game. My nephew, my brother-in-law, and me. Loser buys dinner. And I was just determined not to finish third. Maybe I'll get lucky. Maybe they won't be paying attention. Maybe they, you know, whatever. So I, I got the scores here. I'm sure you're all riveted by this. Nine in the first frame, three in the second frame. And I, but, but there was no gutter ball. It was a two and a one. I was very happy with that. No gutter. Eight in the third frame. So I had 20 points through three frames. And then something just clicked. I, I, I hit nine balls down. There was one left. I aimed for it. I got it. Hey, something's going on here. Next ball, a strike. Whoa. Something's going on here. Next time, nine down. There was one left. I aimed. I rolled. I got it. Next frame, another strike. Then I had an eight, and I, there were two left, and I missed both of them. Then nine, took down the last one. Then a strike. I finished with a 144. So I, I don't know. There's some, some bowling beast that's been awakened. I can't wait to go back. And what will happen is I'll go back, and I'll be horrible. This was like a once-in-a-lifetime fluke that I should always remember. But I am intrigued to see if I can replicate it. And I got to the point where I knew exactly where to stand, how to hold the ball. And I don't, I, I, it's not like I've, I put spin on I don't do any of that fancy shit. Just throw it straight down. If you can consistently throw it straight down the middle, offset, you know, just a little bit. You don't want to go, you don't want to go straight down the one pin. You want to offset just a little bit. If you can do that, you can be halfway decent. That's the hardest part. So I guess I like bowling now. Until I decide that I suck at it, like golf. I liked it for a while until I realized I suck at it. And then I never golfed again. So, 
I'm not going to run off to go bowling. I'm just going to run off because we've filled the allotted time. Thanks for some of your time. Thanks for Tyron Matthews' time. And check us out tomorrow morning. Chris Sims will be back. Got news that Chris Sims is coming to Orlando as well. So we're going to have some fun in Orlando next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at the league meetings. But Chris Sims for Thursday's show on PFT Live. Check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com. And we'll do this again either Thursday or Friday. Probably Friday. May take tomorrow off. We'll see. Maybe we'll do both days. It all depends on what's going on in the news. But again, thanks, and we'll talk soon. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.